Howdy. Welcome to Undersampled Radio, the show where we talk science, tech, oil, business, politics, and more. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Graham. Together, we're the hosts of this circus. To follow the conversation, make suggestions, or rant and rave, please visit the forum Software Underground at swung.rocks. Hello, dearies. Welcome to Undersampled Radio, episode 86. We're broadcasting today from two places in Austin. Because we couldn't get our act together, as you may know, it is South by Southwest this week. Uh, you may not know that, actually, because it's probably taking our editor six weeks to publish this episode. But we are live and direct from Austin, South, South by, by Southwest. Southwest. 2019, just, 2019. just it takes a really long time. Thank you. Uh, I don't really know what South by Southwest. Let's let's kick this episode off with a informative segment we call Teach Graham what South by Southwest is. So uh, to, to do this, we are going to introduce a much more uh, familiar Austinite than myself, and then we'll go into news. Uh, shocking, I know, we're changing our show format. It's never happened before. Um, we have with us today, Matt Jaffe. Hey, Matt. Hey, how's it going? What is happening over there? Are you in downtown Austin or where? I am uh, in the southernmost part of Austin, down in uh, Circle C Ranch ah. in my home. So I've, I've managed to avoid South by Southwest for most of the week. Um, yeah. I did... I did get caught on a $30 parking charge once, but uh, otherwise I've, uh, I've been pretty lucky. Okay, so maybe you can tell me. So I, as some of our listeners know, I've, I haven't even lived in Austin for two years and I don't really still understand what the deal is with South by Southwest. So there's like a tech conference and music stuff. What is the, what is the layout? Yeah, unfortunately, I've only been here a little bit longer than you have. Um, ah. I, I did kind of attend it um, my first year here, and it's like a sprawling conference slash party slash um, vendor showcase, uh, you know, and it, it's got tech and music and all kinds of stuff. And it, I mean, it really kind of takes up the whole city while it's going on um, and I mean, it's just general insanity, and I think it's grown a lot in the past few years, and um, it's becoming kind of corporate and, and crazy. But, uh, yeah, it's definitely an interesting time to be in Austin, um, but I think a lot of the locals aren't aren't huge fans of it. <laughs> it's okay, so week, is it? It's one week? It's, it's, no. I think it's over a few weeks, actually. Oh, yeah. yeah. The, different, the different portions, because uh, there's, like, the tech portion, and then there's, I think, a music portion, and there might be like a film portion. Okay. So I've, I have some friends coming to town this weekend should be here in two hours and I want to go do something. I figure it's South by Southwest and they'll be here. So let's try to do something. Uh, I guess, tell me if this is a bad idea. My plan is tomorrow, we're just going to like go walk around downtown and see what's going on. Maybe stop in here and there. Yeah, there should be plenty of, wacky things to just pop into i heard there was like some kind of robot display on caesar chavez that sony was doing where they've got uh i don't know some kind of like ai type thing where these robots are like trying to learn behaviors from the crowds as they go by or something like that 
Um, <laughs> so, I mean, there should be all kinds of wacky stuff like that all over downtown. Awesome. It sounds it sounds like sort of CES meets Burning Man meets Google Next or something. That's a pretty good description. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sounds crazy. I, I mean, I, I've, I sort of haven't been, but I came across it. Uh, the phenomenon. Uh, it seemed like it was really connected with the start of blogging and um, kind of. I don't know what you, I suppose that's social media stuff. But, but I, like I've been feeling like blogging's really changed over the last few years. But there's a different feel, so I can I can see how South by Southwest must have evolved or devolved uh, or something to side evolved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like pivoted, I guess, because um, that whole landscape is just so so different now from what it was kind of ten years ago. Um, but yeah, sounds pretty cool. We don't really have a lot of stuff like that happening in Nova Scotia, where I live. No, oh, by the way, that's in Nova Scotia. There's a, there's a, there's a couple of little uh, you know conferences around web tech and stuff like that. But I mean, those I'm I'm an hour away from the city, so um, we did we did just start a meetup, a computer sort of machine learning slash. How many people go? <laughs> don't make fun of me. I don't know. Maybe there were like nine of us at the last one. Wow, that's, that's actually double digits. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think we could hit double digits at some point. No, it's, no, it's kind of nice to keep it that small. You can have like homework assignments and things. That's right. Yeah, we'll see where it goes. But I'm really hoping to. Um, someone was threatening to do like a show and tell, hands on with Unity last time. So that would be fun. I'd like that. Yeah. So I hope there's more of that. So I heard that uh, Pick This is uh, resurrected from the dead. Yeah. Yeah, seems like it for now. Seems to be making a bit of a comeback. We we built this thing, Matt, uh, that's uh, I've sort of described it as like Stack Overflow for images, which obviously makes it sound much more important than it actually is. But uh, basically, it's a way to ask questions about images or, or rather questions that require a sort of graphical drawing for an answer. Uh, so we can kind of crowdsource answers to these kind of spatial uh, questions. Uh, so it's aimed at people who interpret images for a living, like geophysicists, radiologists, oh, interesting. that kind of thing. That oh, That's pretty cool, actually. That kind of reminds me, um, when I was in grad school, I did a, a sort of summer project where I was looking for pulsars in all this radio telescope data. Hmm. And a lot of that was just like getting really good at recognizing patterns in these uh, these graphs, you know, graphs basically that are just kind of bitmap images. Um, and so after a while, you could be like, oh, no, that's definitely fake. That's definitely fake. There's nothing there. Definitely fake. Because, hmm. um, you know, when you're looking for when you've got like a ridiculously powerful radio telescope and you're looking for uh, signals from pulsars that are, you know, 100 million light years away or whatever. It turns out there's a lot of interference that can make fake signals, you know, like microwaves and cars and, and just, you know, anything that produces radio waves. Oh, when you say microwaves, you're talking about actual yes. microwaves in the yes. kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and the microwaves <laughs> that sure. they emit, yeah. What's what's the, the, the sample rate of the data? Uh, I... Do not remember. I think I said grad school, but I actually meant college. This was a while ago. Hmm. Um, 
Yeah. So you didn't, you're not a, an astronomer slash astrophysics? No, my, my bachelor's degree was in astrophysics. Um, and then I pretty quickly migrated to computer science uh, for master's and, and all my career. Jeff, who works at a company called Pelosa, which is building a distributed bitmap index, which we'll talk about momentarily. But since we're on it, what happened after college and grad school? How did, how did you kind of like get into the computer science world? Uh, so in, in college, I guess, I mean, I'd been interested in programming and computers in high school. Um, and I, I kind of went the physics route in college, but I was still taking uh, comp sci yes. classes. And um, I, I minored in computer science. And then I ended up getting into a, a graduate program in computer science. And I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to do this. <laughs> um, and and so then I, you know, I did that. I met some really smart people, worked with some really smart people. Um, and after I got my master's, I was like, you know, I want to like build software. I want to write real programs, uh, not uh, just kind of fiddle around in academia. And so I was like, I'm going to go get a job. And I, I got a job for a government contractor in the D.C. area. Um, and that kind of had some ups and downs. Uh, I, I did a very wide variety of things there. I, I did like web development. I did uh, some Java and some closure doing like data pipelines and ETL stuff. Um, I did a desktop GUI app in Python. Um, huh. I, and, and I also, I did sort of like an internal skunks work type project doing, uh, using GPUs to look at uh, network traffic and, and scan for patterns in network traffic. Cool. Uh, so like a really interesting kind of wide breadth of stuff, um, you know, is a kind of place where they were like, oh, you think you think you can do Python? All right, we'll put you on this project. Oh, you know, a little Java, we'll put you on this project. Yeah, um, that's a great way to start your career, right? I mean, it, it was, it was, to be honest. Um, yeah. I, we eventually kind of got tired of the DC area and wanted to move someplace warmer. Um, and so that's how I ended up uh, coming to Austin and uh, started working for this company called Umble, where where Pelosa was actually built. Um, and then a couple years after that, we spun Pelosa out. You, you did what? You spun Pelosa. Oh, it started off as a sort of one project inside another company. Yeah. And then it kind of took on a life of its own, right? Yes. Uh, it, it was pretty interesting. And... I wasn't involved in the details of the spin out, but my understanding is that it was quite difficult to perform that maneuver, sort of um, I just like getting all the tax implications right and, and you know getting all the investors on board and, and just kind of making that happen is not an easy thing. Um, but the, uh, the management team did it and, uh, and now we're a totally independent company, which is pretty cool. Yeah. So right. give us, what is it? What What is Pelosa? Ah, uh, so it kind of depends who you ask. You know, if you ask our CEO, he'll give you like this, like super vision heavy answer, of, you know, like far future, like, you know, we want to be the integration platform for every algorithm, and, you know, or something like that. Um, but I mean, at, at its core, it's just, um, it's, it's an index. Um, and so, you know, Databases have indexes inside them, and Pelosa is really just the index part. Um, and so there, there aren't too many things like that. Um, even things that call themselves indexes, like Elasticsearch, 
they really start by kind of storing your data in the normal database type way, um, and then they build indexes on top of it. Um, and Pelosa just starts with your data indexed. Uh, and it turns out that has some nice properties um, for sort of scalability and query performance. Um, and so, I mean, the, the main reason that Pelosa exists is for performance because, you know, we were, we were at Humble, we were trying to build this crazy UI for marketers that let them slice and dice over all their, um, all their customer data. And, um, you know, each page was making like tens or hundreds of queries. And so we needed each query to return in, you know, just a few milliseconds. Hmm. What is Humble? It's a, it's a customer three, 360 app or something. Yeah, it's like a customer data platform um, focused on like the sports and entertainment market. Um, so yeah. Yeah, basically it was, it was like a web tool for marketers to get a broad view of all their data and then drill down into different segments and figure out, you know, who they wanted to like send a certain email to, or, you know, or just learn about their user base. Hmm, gotcha. Okay. Um, so when you spun this thing out, how did you, I mean, what, what pieces of the tech did you take? Was it just all ideas? I mean, were you guys able to retain any actual building blocks? Oh yeah, I mean, so Pelosa was built at Umble, but it was like a totally separate thing. And so most of most of Umble was like this big kind of like Django Python app, mm -hmm. um, and and we built Pelosa as basically uh, a supplemental backend um, sort of data store to answer some of these really hard queries that were, uh, you know, making Elasticsearch fall over or whatever. And, and so when we spun out, I mean, it was pretty clear, like, oh, like, this is Pelosa, it's in this repository, right? Um, and so, and then we ended up open sourcing it shortly thereafter, um, which I'm a huge fan of. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was it was pretty clear kind of where the IP was demarcated. Hmm. Yeah, that's really cool. So um, was that a deliberate move right at the beginning to be quite kind of modular? I mean, I guess an indexing sort of service is always going to be pretty standalone, right? I mean, you know, um, but what, was there a thought that it might be a thing on its own? I'm guessing there wasn't, seems like. Uh, I think once once it was built and, and the first query started hitting it, um, I, I wasn't there at that time. I joined shortly thereafter. Um, but I think around that time, they started to think like, you know, this is this is probably bigger than than what Umble is going to use it for because it was just so much more performant. You know, for the types of queries they were trying to do than anything else they'd tried, and they'd been through a lot of different open source you know data solutions at that point, like like Rethink and uh, is it Rethink or I don't know. I mean, everything that was available at the time. So Umble became the first customer, basically. Yeah, for this new uh, thing, and and then uh, like the core technology was open sourced, was it? Yeah, yeah, we open sourced the whole thing shortly after we spun out. Um, basically, I was like, nobody's gonna take like a database seriously in 2017 or whatever it was, unless it's open source. Was kind of my feeling. Hmm. I mean, I I definitely wouldn't as a developer. I, I'm not like looking at proprietary solutions. Like, oh yeah, I want to use that. I mean, some people still do. It, it's not. <laughs> it's not like it's impossible, but uh, you know, it, it just doesn't seem very exciting. And I think it was the right choice. I mean, we've had a lot of good interest come from the community, and then 
um, you know, start down the path towards converting to, you know, like an actual customer that's paying us for support or um, enterprise license or whatever it is. Yeah. Seems so, like very much a developer, sorry, Grant, but like a very much a developer's tool, right? I think when you're, the, the open source story is, uh, is a, a, a relatively, it's an easier sell when it's other devs that you're talking to because they get it. Because like, like you, they don't want closed source stuff. Um, but that's, uh, that's, that's really cool. And uh, so what I'm going to ask about later after Graham's question is uh, wh like what the business model sort of consists of. Um, Cause I'm really interested in how you build, how you make money basically with open source at the, at the core of your business. But yeah, me too. Graham, you, you, you were gonna... no, no, no. Go on, go on, please. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. So, yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, um, like, is it, is it, you know, the model that sort of first comes to mind for a lot of computer people is kind of red hat, right? Where you've got like fundamentally open source piece at the middle and then you sell support maintenance software. I get other software uh, services training around that central piece. Like what's your guys thing? Yeah. So the, there are a lot of models and I think it's, pretty widely believed that the Red Hat model like won't work again, right? And, mm -hmm. and, and whether that's true or not doesn't really matter because no one's going to invest in it. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, and so what we're doing right now is kind of a hybrid where, you know, we, we've had enough interest in like, basically like support and like feature prioritization and that kind of thing that, that we're getting some contracts around that. Um, but what we really want to do is wrap a managed service around Pelosa that, that, you know, we can sell as like, like a cloud service basically. Mm. Um, and so I think people are a lot more willing to just basically pay for that ease of use and like not having the operational overhead. Um, but it, Pelosa is still in a place where it's a, it's a low enough level tool that, um, most organizations need some help getting going. And so I think we're, we're, we're kind of using that to bootstrap our way into a fully managed service kind of thing. Right, very cool. And it's going well, like the things look rosy. Yeah, I, I mean, we've got, we've got a few customers and potential customers who are pushing various parts of Pelosa kind of to the edge and us being like, oh, well, yeah, it does use a lot of memory in that situation. And or like, oh, like, yeah, the scaling doesn't work in that direction. We'll have to do something about that. And so hmm. we've had a, a lot of really good feedback from some really big users. Um, and, you know, and it's it's nothing that's like, oh, it's totally broken. Like we have to shut down. <laughs> um, but it's all stuff that, you know, we can address and it's it's fun engineering problems. So. Uh, yeah, it's it's going quite well, and it's, I'm consistently excited to to come to work and and try to figure these things out. Yeah, right. How does it work? Wait, I mean, wait. First of all, what is a bitmap index? All right, all right. So <laughs> let's see. Um, let's take a a database uh, table that is uh, it's the the people table. So each record is a person, um, and one of the columns is shirt color, right? And so it has different values like red, green, blue, orange, yellow, et cetera. And so normally how you would store that is, you know, like record one, uh, red, 
record two, green, record three, blue, and all the other columns, right, on each one. Um, and what a bitmap index does is it says, here's my, here's my record. Um, is the shirt red? Is the shirt green? Is the shirt blue? Is the shirt orange? Is the shirt yellow? So it, it basically has, instead of that one column, it has N columns, one for each color. And each column is a single bit. Um, and so whether that bit is set or not represents whether the person's shirt is that color. Um, and so if you want to say, find all the people who have red shirts or blue shirts, but not green shirts, then you take the red shirt bitmap and the blue shirt bitmap and you union them together and then you subtract out the green shirt bitmap. And so, I mean, you could imagine someone has shirts with several colors on them, so they might have multiple bits set. Um, and basically what that allows you to do is really, really fast types of, like those types of segmentation queries. Hmm. Um, and it's not immediately obvious, but it also allows you to do pretty fast, like aggregations, like group buys and filtered group buys. And, um, there's also a pretty, uh, clever way to store like integer values without sort of exploding your space requirements. Um, and so you can do range queries across integers, which sort of opens up, um, the ability to do time, uh, and a lot of other things. I was and wondering so, about that. Yeah. So <laughs> we have this one core data structure and we have a super, super optimized, uh, implementation of it at the lowest level. And we use it for everything. And it's so much nicer than having like multiple different indexing solutions and then having to try to interoperate them because mm -hmm. every operation you get a bitmap out and it's distributed across a cluster and it's all sharded out. But each operation gives you a bitmap and each operation takes in a bitmap or, or several bitmaps. And so you, you can sort of infinitely nest queries and, and, you know, do whatever you need to do. And at the core, it's all using a pretty small piece of code, you know, that, that's running all this stuff. And so it's it's pretty easy to manage even as you know just a small group of developers. Hmm. So like when I hear the word bitmap, I think of images, but it sounds like this is more like bits as in binary, like on and off. Yes, it's a it's um, actually a bit set. So it, it's okay. a way to represent a set of integers by okay. by whether or not a bit is set in a certain position in a in just one long chain of bits right right so and so that's so what you described earlier sounds like one hot encoding right is that sounds like it's related yeah i think so where Wait, instead of storing a label you store whether something has a label or not yeah like of, of, of classes so i mean but your your shirt color example was was spot on right graham right how do you store floats so we don't right now. Um, we we have done some research into it. It looks pretty feasible. There's not a lot of demand for it for us that we've seen. Um, so we kind of put it on the back burner. Um, you know, obviously, if if you don't need like, you know, it, to whatever your precision you need, you know, you can multiply or divide your number, turn it into an integer, and store it as an integer. Um, but that obviously doesn't work for applications that need to go like super, super small and large or, you know, whatever. 
I mean, that's kind of how floats work anyway, isn't it? I mean, that's how they're implemented, essentially. This is a bunch of integers. I triple E, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and so that's effectively like what we would do. We would have like the significant and the exponent and the sign bit and and do some internal stuff to to sort of figure it out when you put in a range query or whatever. Um but it it's just it's just not number one on our priority list. And we've got somewhere less than 10 developers. So mm -hmm. we have to kind of pick and choose what we're working on. Okay. So how do you how do you store ints then without, I mean, it seems like you have to limit the dynamic range. Right, right. So the, the naive way would just be to have a bitmap for every value. And yeah. so, um, you know, we, we use a, a compression format for bitmaps. It's very nice and very good, but having, you know, 4 billion bitmaps would still be a little yeah. bit rough. Um, and so what we do is we actually store the, binary representation of the in integer in however many bitmaps we need to store the range of integers that you want to store. Oh. So if you have integers that go from zero to a thousand, then we only need 10 bitmaps. So, cause it's two to the 10. Um, and if you have integers that go from zero to 4 billion, then we need 32 bitmaps. And I won't necessarily dive into it, but it turns out that you can construct queries over arbitrary ranges by intersecting and unioning and differencing those bitmaps to get out a bit set that represents all the records that fall within that range and none of the records that don't. Huh. That's pretty cool. It's, it's called bit sliced indexing. And we have a pretty detailed blog post uh, if, if you do want to know more about that. Um, the interesting the thing notes. about that is that I'm not sure that any other system you uses that. I mean, lots of systems use bitmap indexes, but I don't know of any that use bitmap bit sliced indexing. Hmm. And can you compressing these bit set things that would be run length encoding? Or can you do better than that? Yes. Yeah, so uh, we use a format called roaring um, developed uh, by uh, a guy named Daniel Lemire, who is actually in Montreal, I believe. Yeah, yeah. I read his um, book. <laughs> yeah, his blog's awesome. Um, and, and so what Roaring does is it's, it's so, it's so simple, but it's so incredibly effective. Um, it has three different encoding types. Uh, one is just a bitmap, like you just store the bits. Um, and so that's good for sort of high entropy, high information density type data. Okay. Um, and then another is an array. You just store an array of integers, uh, that represent your bit set. And so that's good for really, really sparse data. And the other is, you guessed it, run length encoding, uh, which is good for super, super dense bitmaps uh, where, and it, it it turns out there's a lot of times where you have every bit set for a long, long run. And so using run length encoding makes that trivial to compute on. Mm. Um, but the the really interesting thing about Roaring is every every operation, whether it's in a logical and, a logical or, a not, you know, whatever it is, it is defined on every pair of possible encodings. So you never have to like encode or decode or like convert representations. Yeah, cool. You just do your operations. So we have like a union array bitmap, union array run. Um, so the implementation is a little bit more complex, but it's just ridiculously fast. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I've been playing around recently with, um, I don't even know what, I'm not a computer scientist. 
or, or really a scientist, like, or a mathematician, uh, or anything, but, um, it's, He's on the things. it's, well, you know, yeah. Pretend. Yeah, I could sense the false um, modesty just reiterating, yeah, yeah. but <laughs> or maybe it was real modesty, but it, it was misplaced. So anyway, I, but I don't, so I don't know what to call this, but the thing that I'm doing seems like um, spatial indexing. So like what a GIS does, but it's one dimensional, which seems like it should be easier, and it probably is easier. But when you're writing the code, it's sort of still a bit of a mind bender sometimes, right? But what I love is how the, there is this sort of fundamental set of operations, like, you know, sort of unions and differences and, and so on, that once you've got them, you can do almost anything. It's, yeah. it's kind of magical. It's like, I, I don't know what you'd call them. They're almost like axiomatic. You would call that operators. A, you would call that a ring, right? A ring. Where's my mathematician? Yeah, yeah. Is this, what is this? This is this is like is that, uh, set theory. What it's set theory? Yeah. Okay. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So one operation defines an algebra. No wait. Fuck, I can't remember. Uh, it's what is it? Two operations over a group define an algebra, and a a complete set of operations defines a ring. I can't remember, but it seems like that's what you're defining uh, here. I don't know Jeffy, what you're talking about, but it's giving me goosebumps. <laughs> All I know is that you don't need much more than not an and to be Turing complete. Right. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty interesting. Okay, wait, 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 wait. I have another question. We we covered bitmap index now, but we didn't cover distributed. What does that mean? Oh, yeah. Uh it just means you can put it on a bunch of computers at the same time. How do you do that? It, it uh, seems like one bitmap. So okay, so you break a bitmap into multiple pieces and store them on multiple computers? Right, so we we shard it, um, and so basically you would take uh, our default is uh, two to the twenty records, which is a mil about a million records, um, and we actually Wait, so what, what do you mean? Say that again. Your default, our default shard width is okay. two to the twenty. So that that means you have a bit. Say say you have uh, four in our in our previous example, you have a billion people uh, mm. in your in your data store. Okay. Um, and so you have a billion records and we would break that up into about a thousand pieces because there's a million people in each shard and those get distributed across the cluster. And so that might mean that they're just on one really big node that has 96 processors or whatever, or it might mean that they're on a cluster of 20 nodes, you know, that each have eight cores or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, and that that sort of unit of sharding is not just for distributing across nodes it's actually sort of the unit of concurrency within Pulosa too now i know you folks use python so this might be a little unfamiliar but you can actually use all the cores in one machine at the same time <gasps> i'm just messing nonsense uh, <laughs> wait 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 so do you you must have an index do, do you guys write your own index to do that sharding? Do you, do you have like a bitmap that is the index to where the pieces are sitting? Uh, kind of. Actually, um, the to figure out where each piece is, we use a, a hash, a consistent hash. Um, and so you you take the, the index name and the shard number and you hash that and it goes to a point on a ring and then you sort of map 
the nodes that you have onto that ring in such a way that if you add a node, you have to kind of do the minimum amount of shuffling to get all the shards where they need to be. Um, and huh. that, that's a pretty typical strategy that most like distributed storage things use. Um, but uh, what was I going to say? Oh, right. We, we actually do use a bitmap to, uh, to show which shards have data. Um, mm -hmm. so, so internally, when we're talking about like which shards have data which versus which don't, because sometimes there's gaps. Um, oh, that way you don't have to map across all of them when you're doing analysis. Or... Right, exactly. And, and so we we were like, okay, so like we're gonna keep track of which shards have data, but you know, you might have like thousands and thousands of shards. It's kind of like annoying to pass around. Oh, well, we can just represent <laughs> that as a bitmap. <laughs> we already have this nice library here. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Okay, so uh, going one level more abstracted, how do you how do you actually interface with this system to perform analytics? So I can I can sort of conceptually see how you do a, a filter, uh, but I but from there, how do you interact with the data? Right. So that's that's a fantastic question, and it's it's one that we're really trying to to figure out the right answer to i mean we have we have a query language uh, that's really simple that we developed that lets you do counts and you know intersections and unions and differences and xors and i don't really know what xor is good for but we've got it <laughs> um and it, it'll probably be good for something um and and then it we've also added on top of that um like group buys and top ends where you can say like you know give me the top colors you know i want i want the top colors by how many people are wearing a shirt of that color um and what's really cool about that is you can also filter it and so maybe you would say i want the top colors but just for females from connecticut right or something like that um and and you can you can get that list of of top colors and then when we added group by you can actually do that over multiple fields at a time so it's like um i don't know if we had shirt color well, yeah, you could do every shirt color gender combination and and the count of of people who had that, and you could do that for some arbitrary filter as well. Um, so it it's getting it's getting to a point where we can start to see we have visibility into like just trying to support something like SQL. Um, yeah, so, you know we've got um, select count group by where. Uh, it's pretty easy to see how we can do having, um, and in some cases, joins are actually trivial. In some yeah, cases, they're not. Uh, but uh, so, for example, in the in the shirt color example, um, you would have you would, in in a SQL database, you either have a column that's color and it's a string, or if if people can have shirts of multiple different colors, then you have to have some kind of like many to many with like, you know, like another table in the middle uh, and it gets a little bit messy, right? Whereas yeah. in Pelosa, it just sort of naturally supports that. You just set another bit and then that person now, you know, has both colors of shirt on. Mm -hmm. um, and so in, in that case where you would normally have to do some kind of join thing, it's just, it's just already there. It's actually harder for Pelosa to do the, the mutually exclusive case where every person only has one shirt color. 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So when you're, uh, okay. Yeah. So we're interacting with the data that way. And then there must be some sort of, you need a translator or something to like in the case of categorical data to map from bits to back to data to do whatever, um, like mathematics on the, on the data. Yeah. And so there's a couple options for that. Um, Pelosa has an internal one, or you can, you can sort of map your data ahead of time and, and have something external that's storing like what the, the numbers represent. Um, and, and there's, there's pros and cons to each. Um, so really, cause it, when you, when you do a query in Pelosa, you're either getting back like a count or you're getting back just a bunch of IDs that are, that are indexes into, you know, into the, the, the bitmap, whether it's, whether it's row indexes or sorry, our terminology is like backwards. So, but whether it's, um, column indexes, which would give you, um, actual values. Um, so like mm. the color red or the color oh, blue, yeah. or it, it's row indexes and, and I'm actually inverting our terminology so that it makes a little more sense or it's row indexes, which would give you like, this is a, the identifier for a person. Um, and so you wouldn't store like an email address in Pelosa because pretty much every person has one email address, right? And, and there'd be no point in, in having that indexed. Um, and so uh, you get that ID back or whatever, and then you can go look up in like a really fast key value store or something, you know, that, that single ID or that small set of IDs and, and get the, the non-indexed data like email addresses or whatever. Have you guys done math on the bits? Seems like, I mean, you could definitely build, uh, I, I do a lot of deep, deep learning work. So, I mean, you could definitely build a neural network, which would take data in bit form and process it. Have you done any of this? Yeah, we, so actually, right before we spun out of Umble, we did a project where we implemented a by-click enumeration, a maximal by-click enumeration algorithm. Um, and so basically that's, you, you can think of um, Pelosa as a, a representation of a graph where, um, so, so it's, we've got a bunch of, of bitmaps, right? And so that's basically a bit matrix. And so a bit matrix you could think of as an adjacency matrix, which could be a graph representation where each row, if a row has an edge, or sorry, if, if, yeah, like if a row, if there's an edge between two nodes, then there's a set bit at a particular position that says like row 37 is a node and, co and column 22 is a node and a set bit means that there's an edge between them. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, and so at Umble, we had like people and uh, just for example, Facebook pages that people like, and there's like 50 million Facebook pages and we've got like 300 million people or whatever. And we wanted to find clicks. We wanted to find highly connected groups where a whole bunch of people liked some subset of Facebook pages. Because mm -hmm. um, that's really interesting to marketers, right? Like, oh, there's this like interesting subculture of people that uh, we, can, we can market to in a specific way or something. Um, and it turns out that enumerating these clicks and finding maximal clicks uh, is fairly computationally expensive. Um, but we, we implemented a way to do that in Pelosa um, that was, you know, faster. Um, 
and it's still it's still an expensive thing to do um but when you're you're doing it on raw bits and you can sort of you have a lot of concurrency at your disposal it's it's a little bit easier but that that is a path we want to go more toward because the way that pelosa represents your data is is kind of ripe for that kind of thing yeah yeah that's fascinating you could could you build yeah, I'm thinking like you could build embedding layers, embedded like latent vectors out of the bitmaps themselves to transform into a new domain and then invert, like run the process backwards to get a new bitmap out. Oh, do I don't know if you care about that in the binary case. I don't know. It's That sounds awesome. Um, and we're running out of time and I want to cover one more huge topic here, which is... <laughs> What's Pelosa written in? <laughs> Pelosa is written um, in Go. Huh. What's What's that about? <laughs> so Go uh, is a little bit of a newer language. I think it, it uh, was first open sourced in 09 or something. Um, and it was designed at Google um, by a bunch of really old uh, kind of Unix diehards, you know, from from the early days. Uh, and they they basically the the origin story is that they were writing a lot of C at Google and they were getting really, really frustrated with how long the builds were taking. because um, you know Google has all this awesome build infrastructure and you can shard your build out across, you know, a, a billion computers or whatever it is. But they were still taking like 45 minutes. And that's because there's sort of fundamental limitations in the way that dependencies are specified and, and the way that um, C++ pulls in files when it's compiling things. Uh, and so they were like, you know, they had all this free time when, when their code was compiling and they started uh, thinking about like what the ideal language would look like for them. Um, and that turned out to be this like very pragmatic, very pared down, minimal programming language with uh, really good support for concurrency. Um, and so the what what they say is that Go is designed for programming in the large or really for software engineering, where you have, you know, tens to hundreds to thousands of programmers and your code is running on thousands to hundreds of thousands to millions of machines. Um, and it turns out that in that case, like, you don't want a language with a gazillion different features where you know, everybody can do something a little bit differently. You want a language with the absolute minimum set of features so that a new programmer can come on, look at the code and get familiar with it really fast and not have a bunch of gotchas and foot guns and, and you know, all kinds of weird things. Um, and you also want it to be efficient. And of course you want compile times to be really, really low um, because that was the, the whole reason you know that, that they started thinking about it in the first place um, and so so go is a language kind of designed with all that in mind and they've done a pretty good job I you know there's there's definitely still some problems with the language it's it's still got kind of its rough spots as any language does um, but it, it is it, it's a very readable minimal language that uh, allows you to write very efficient code so compared to something like C++, it's sort of 
not got those um, higher higher level features and stuff. What what's the like library support or dependency support? Is there is there a community for that stuff? Yeah, the the Go community has gotten pretty large. Um, I think they have like forty thousand people on their Slack, like the GoLang Slack, um, and a similar number of stars on the GitHub repo. And I, by some counts, there's you know a million odd Go developers in the world. So it's it's definitely not small anymore. The standard library is fantastic. Um, it's definitely not where Python is. I mean, you know, or Java or something like that. You know, there's there's definitely specialty things that haven't been done or, or haven't been done and optimized to the degree to the degree that they are in other languages. Um, but for a lot of tasks, especially um, like um, ops tools and you know, just kind of like server side data processing code, it's a really fantastic language. Is it is it fast? Like C. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think if if your code is like highly CPU bound, the the rule of thumb is that it's going to be a factor of two to a factor of three slower than C or C plus um, plus. Mm -hmm. And maybe that sounds bad, but it's it's really not. It's pretty close. Um, and if your code's not CPU bound, then you know it's probably going to be right right there. Um, it is garbage collected, so you know you you do have that to contend with. Um, but I mean, that, that usually turns out to be a pretty good idea, you know, as we see from the bug reports that keep pouring in of horrible vulnerabilities. Are you, are you that, are you, uh, allocating memory and all of those absolutely nonsensical things too? Sorry. Are you allocating memory and dealing with memory structures while you code too? No, no, it's, it's garbage collected. So you don't have to, uh, you don't have to manually allocate and free memory. Um, although it, it turns out that sometimes, very occasionally, you do want to do that because the garbage collector can can get in the way. Um, but Go's garbage collector is is pretty well tuned to to not interrupt your your program much. I don't, I don't know if you all have done much Java, but uh, Java, at least you know, a few years ago, was pretty famous for the the garbage collector pausing your entire program for seconds at a time. You know, while it kind of did its thing. Hmm. That's cool. Well, so would you say, is it one of those languages that's kind of, you know, worth learning, so to speak, because it's got such interesting idioms or um, can teach you something about computer science or? It's, it's definitely worth learning, um, mostly because the, the cost of learning it is so low. I mean, <laughs> there's just not much to it. Right. Um, but but the idioms that it does have, I mean, you will not think about concurrency the same way after after writing some Go or you know writing enough Go to to kind of get into it because you can write a easily write a program that you spin up and it just pegs every core on your machine at a hundred percent, and that's like such a beautiful thing when you're trying to eke out you know every last bit of performance. That's pretty cool. Um, and I mean. Just so it, so at Umble, you know, we we had this big Python Django code base, and um, I started rewriting bits of it in Go while we were there. And I mean, the performance improvements are just drastic. I mean, it's like fifty x is not uncommon. <laughs> uh, it's 
um, because because of both the the concurrency support and also just because it's a compiled language with with a relatively good compiler. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, you're you're going to do better in C or C plus plus or Rust. I've heard a lot of good things about Rust, um, mm -hmm. but for kind of all around ergonomics, um, goes goes pretty nice. Awesome. Yeah, very cool. What are you reading at the moment, Daffy? So I've been uh, I've been cranking through a lot of David Foster Wallace. Um, and the, the one I'm reading right now is, is not one of his more famous ones. It's called, I think it's called like the broom of the system. Uh, yeah. And it's really weird. Uh, a lot of his stuff is, is kind of weird, um, but he's, he's a really, he's a really good author. I mean, the, the stuff he comes up with is, is really interesting. Um, and, and sometimes it's incredibly informative too. I just read uh, this one called the pale King, which is all about like the IRS and the inner workings of the IRS. Um, as told from like the point of view of like various employees and, and people associated with it. Um, That's awesome. Yes, yeah, it's, it's really wacky stuff. Um, but, but most of his stuff is is really nice to read just because he's, I mean, he's such a good author. He has, he has a way with prose. Huh, that's cool. I, I, I need to read some of his stuff. I recently read a, what's it in that book? Bad Blood? The it's it's a it's the sort of manifesto of the Theranos story written by the the Wall Street Journal uh, author who 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 broke the story or whatever, uh, but it's sort of written the same way. It's 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 told from inside out. There's a uh, a huge amount of internal references from the company. It's it's kind of a, a fascinating book. Hmm. How about you, Matt Hall? Yeah, I'm uh, I'm reading. We uh, we teach a course. Uh, in Python, Matt. Uh, was, I don't, I don't want to. I don't no, want to sound like I'm knocking Python too much because it's obviously <laughs> like an amazing achievement, you know. And and it's it's a good language, and the data science support in Python is incredible. So I I don't want to sound like I'm knocking it too much, <laughs> but if if you're doing like backend stuff or high performance stuff that's not data science related, there there's there's other things out there. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's always interesting to hear about other languages. Um, but yeah, we're mostly teaching beginners and um, as a sort of graduation gift at the end of the course, I'll, I, I give out a book of some kind to all the uh, participants. And um, I've used a few different, a few different books uh, in, the, in the courses we've done, but last time, uh, I can't remember why, but um, I used a new one. I chose Algorithms to Live By, by uh, two guys, Brian Christian and Tom Griffiths. One of them is a journalist uh, who seems to have taken care of the writing. And the other one, I think, is a psychologist or some kind of uh, at least semi-scientist and, uh, and clearly knows quite a bit about computational methods and stuff. So what they've done is it's a, essentially it's a popular treatment of a bunch of algorithms. Um, from kind of stuff like sorting to, you know, waiting, early finishing. Uh, I don't. Th I, I'm only about halfway through the book, so I don't quite know what what else they're going to cover. But you know, lots of them are familiar to anyone who's done a lot of um, uh, scientific computing. But they've they what's quite. I mean, they've done quite a good job of really cataloging them and unpacking some of them, and telling a bit about the history, like where this algorithm came from, what it was developed for. Um, originally, um, but but then trying to sort of map it onto everyday life and say, 
you know, you, like you can sort out your to-do list uh, like this, you know, with sort of these theories of um, what's the most efficient order to do jobs when you know roughly how long they're going to take and stuff like that. So, um, you know, it's, it's, which I, I thought at the beginning, I thought, oh, this is a bit kind of cute. I'm not sure I might skip these bits, but actually, you know, it's kind of interesting. If I do binary research all the time. Yeah, there you go. Binary yeah. search is what, but it is one of those things that is totally non-intuitive, I think, to people who don't know anything about computer science. Yeah. Um, but it's like a magic thing. Um, anyway, so uh, it, and if, if nothing else, these little analogies and mappings onto everyday life give you another way of explaining stuff in the classroom. You know, it's like another kind of heuristic or uh, analogy that you can use. So I've quite, I quite enjoyed those. But so yeah, I sort of, I think to most computer scientists, they just, they're not going to learn a lot about the algorithms. But um, it's been quite an interesting read. I'll probably finish the book. So if that's anything to go by. <laughs> <laughs> what are you reading, Grant? I'm reading a book called Never Home Alone uh, by Rob Dunn. It is the book was recommended to me by our mutual friend Sebastian Good. Uh, it is a study, or it, it's a it's a cross section of a bunch of studies this author did um, on the bugs that live inside of our homes. Oh. So from bacteria scale to insect scale, um, okay. it's disturbing and fascinating, <laughs> and I totally recommend it. Has it got pictures in it? No, not really. I mean, there are there are some pictures. But no, normally, normally I have to have pictures in books, but that sounds like a book that, where you don't necessarily want any. <laughs> yep. Okay, well, um, Matt Jaffe, thanks for joining us, and, and we look forward to potentially having you back on the show. That would be cool to, to dive into some deep details and maybe talk about a use case. Hey, this has been super fun. I, I can't believe it's been an hour already. Yeah, and I want to I want to find out what molecular is. So we we got to have you back sometime. So that's <laughs> let's leave it for a future one. That's it. All right, everybody. See you next week on Sampled Radio. All right. Cheers. Oh, I've got to do the thing. <laughs> <laughs> We're professionals. I'm doing it. You see, the thing is, what I'm trying to do now is get my mouse from one computer to another computer. Nice. Nice. That's, that's advanced stuff. Yeah.